Let's join in prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you for this opportunity once more to open the scriptures and to hear of them and to read of them, especially with this text this morning. We pray that you might be our teacher and once more appoint us to the wonder and the glory of our Saviour. We pray in his name. Amen. The last words of dying people can be funny, sad or weird or anything in between. During a night of sleeplessness in which he would die, Elvis Presley said, I'm going to the bathroom to read. Joseph Wright was a linguist who edited the English dialect dictionary. His last word was dictionary. Multimillionaire Richard Mellon had a game of tag going with his brother over seven decades. When dying, Richard whispered, last tag to his brother, who then remained it for four years until he also died. John Newton, the former slave trader turned preacher and hymn writer, said as his death neared, I'm still in the land of the dying. I shall be in the land of the living soon. Our text this morning brings us to David's deathbed and David's last words, particularly addressed to the newly crowned King Solomon. So far from chapter 1 of this book, we've seen how Solomon accessed the throne of his father through the ups and downs and the ins and outs of his brother's Adonijah's attempts to steal the throne and all the cut and thrust of political manoeuvring that this brought with it. And in all of that, the focus has shifted away somewhat from David until it comes back to him now. We found out in chapter 1 that David was old, that is, old for those days. Though we might say 70 years is not that old today, it's rather young, isn't it? And it's from his deathbed that David speaks here as a believer, one who had walked with God and was now going to God, dying well, that is to say, dying, trusting in the promises of God which have all just now been relieved for his eyes through the passing on of the throne to Solomon. These last words of David will have the force of all his life behind him. These last words will not be frivolous or wasted. These last words will be purposeful. Spoken not just to a young man who had become king, but a young man who is also a son to his father. It makes you think, at least it does for me anyway, what I would be saying to my two sons if I had the opportunity to say anything before my own death. Those of you who are fathers, if that was your situation, what would you say to your sons? What would your last instructions be Let's widen it to mothers as well, to your children or grandchildren. And the time comes for you to die. Well, we know what David did. 
He gave advice to his son, the new king, and he gave that advice as a believer, as a father and as the king. He gave advice about faith to his son and about the kingdom to the king. And so as we think about David's final words this morning, let's consider them under these three headings. From father to son and then from the last king to the next king before we think about David's own death from the throne to the grave. First, from father to son. And under this heading we find that David has two recorded speeches from his deathbed. That is, the first is found in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 to 7. We actually looked at this some years ago. And this speech he gave can be thought of as his final speech to his subjects in which David spoke as a prophet, uh, proclaiming an oracle about the God who had brought him to the throne and made everlasting promises to him about his kingdom that would continue to all eternity. Uh, Quite a contrast to this, then, is the speech we have before us this morning in this chapter, a very private speech from father to a son, very much aware of his impending death. David the king for 40 years, who has been Israel's shepherd and fearless leader, is going to go the way of all the earth, he says. And with his passing, a period of instability but also opportunity is about to dawn. But David's words, first of all, are to his son. Be strong. And show yourself a man. Now what's interesting here is that David makes a big assumption by saying this to Solomon. He assumes that he understands and we understand what show yourself a man means. What Solomon understands by that instruction. And given the long list of failures that the scriptures have told us about in relation to David and his sons already... This could be something that means nothing at all to Solomon or something completely different. What does David mean, show yourself a man? Well, it's probably safe to say that some of the traditional connotations are intended by his words. In Israel at this time, 1000 BC, traditionally men went off to fight for their country. And so a man who fled the battle was not a man in the sense of being brave and had the courage that was required. As we know, David had been a mighty warrior in battle, had led armies of Israel in great conquests and won many victories. Now Solomon may not have welcomed this instruction with much relish at all. As far as we know, he never went to war. In fact, there was no need. For he led Israel into a time of great peace and prosperity. No such thing as war. And so we must take from this that David called Solomon to do as he had done. To be a man was to be a leader, was to be a brave and courageous leader and steel himself for the tasks, the many tasks ahead of him without having David's steady hand to guide and direct him. Now this raises a question, doesn't it? If you're asked to give a definition of 
what does it mean to be a man today, you'll get some very mixed answers in this very mixed up world where gender roles are as confused as they could possibly be. From the sceptical left, we will hear that manhood is a social construct which has been defined from the Bible and so we need a new definition that takes into account gender wars and sexual identity. Other voices would reduce manhood to shallow caricatures and throw in a macho man with muscles, strong and able-bodied, leaving a legacy of accomplishment or a trail of destruction behind him. But David helps us here. Into the mix, he throws in something applicable to men and to women, by the way. It's there in verse 3. Show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Notice here how the word of God is referred to in no less than seven different ways, as charge, as ways, as statutes, commandments, rules, testimonies and law. As David refers Solomon to being a man, his point is not that Solomon is to be a creature of his gender or of social contracts, but he is a creature designed to worship and serve the Lord God, obligated to give him his due. This highlights for us what's most basic to our human identity. There is something much bigger and grander to define ourselves by that the world totally misses out on because they've long left God out of the picture in that search for identity. Just for a moment, compare the world's worldview and the Bible's. On the one hand, The Bible defines humanity by what we will one day become in our maturity and our perfection when we live with God free from sin as closely conformed to God's holiness as we can be. Compare that to the confusing present perspective that defines us by our lusts and views humanity as a process of evolution, leaving a perspective that empties and bankrupts our humanity rather than enriches us. Solomon is called to be a man and the beginning of that is to be a servant of the Lord. He cannot do this and pursue self-centeredness and materialism and his ego and his reputation all at the same time. David calls Solomon to a higher ideal, to keep a careful eye on the commands of the law of God, For by following these he will please God and he will love his neighbour and do them good for love fulfils the law and the law defines the path of love. So this is David's last gift to his son to call him to obedience to the word of God. Here is a man with a very full lifetime of experience who is calling us to heed this most important advice. We must know the word and we must keep the word. In fact, it was the duty of the king to write out his own personal copy of the law. 
that he might have it before him, just as we have copies before our eyes. Just think how long it would take you to write out the Bible or just Genesis to 2 Samuel or just the Psalms, to write it out. I didn't say scan it into your computer, to write it out. That's what the king was expected to do, to ensure that the word of God would sink in to his mind. He was to be so familiar with it that any time a case came for him to judge, he would know the will of God on the matter straight away. He was to meditate upon it day and night that it might shape his thinking in his life. It was once said of John Bunyan and Charles Spurgeon, that their blood was bibline, that is, if you pricked them with a pin, they would leak the scriptures, not blood. This is how we are to be. For we cannot be strong, we cannot be holy, we cannot be men, men, without the word of God. Fathers, what are you leaving your children and grandchildren? What are you leaving for them? What example are you setting Mothers, what are you doing with your children and your grandchildren? What are you setting for them? See, giving children what they need to live is one thing, but what about something to live for? The purpose. Money and possessions are one thing, but they don't last. The scriptures, kingdom of God, These are forever. Secondly, we read David's words here and note those he gave as the old king to the new. The old king to the new. The second half of David's advice is about how Solomon ought to secure his reign and finish some unfinished business from David's reign, as we find in verses 5 to 9. Now, there have been some differences in interpretation Over this portion, some suggest that David is acting out of base motives and is asking for last-minute revenge. Others maintain that David is outlining these tasks for Solomon so that he might glorify God. I'm not sure we can totally get a satisfying answer that might resolve the tension, but I err on the side of thinking that David is doing something good, though maybe what he's calling for is questionable. David instructs Solomon about three people who need dealing with. Joab, the sons of Barzillai, and Shimei. Joab is first in verses 5 to 6. You will notice that David doesn't ask Solomon to deal with Joab for his own personal reasons, like because he murdered Absalom, his son, against his instructions. Rather, he wanted Joab to pay for crimes that David failed to punish, specifically the crimes of killing Amasa and Abner during a time of peace when David was seeking to bring the two houses of Saul and David together while Joab became more concerned about his own position. And so if Solomon was to be a king whose rule was to be effective and regarded with honour, then upholding justice was going to be key and Joab would have to pay for what he did. At the other end of the scale are the sons of Barzillai. Now just to fill in the detail because you probably won't remember, 
he was an octogenarian who helped David when he fled from Absalom way back in 2 Samuel 17. At the time, David promised to bless his sons with good, to thank Barzillai for his, the good done to him. And David told Solomon that he was to be commended and honoured as an encouragement to those who would show loyalty to the throne, showing that those who love and serve the king will be rewarded. And then there's Shimei. This man was a member of the family of Saul, who was also involved in the day that David fled from Absalom, except unlike Barzillai, Shimei greeted David with a volley of verbal curses amidst rocks and stones in his direction that David didn't very much appreciate at the time. He promised him on the day that he wouldn't kill him. This didn't mean that he didn't deserve to die, just that it wouldn't happen straight away. It was a threat and Solomon was to make good the threat. Now it's unclear if David thought that Shimei might present a thorn in the side of the new king and knew something we don't. Others suggest that David was looking for a way to weasel out of his oath by getting someone else to do the dirty work of killing him. But this would seem a poor way to interpret David's oath when he's willing to see the promise to Barzillai honoured. So there's a question mark over his motives. But what we are reminded here is that in the purpose of God, evil will be punished and good will be rewarded. That doesn't mean that the good are given salvation. Not at all, for there's none that are good enough. But when Jesus comes back, when judgment day dawns and he takes up the throne, just as Solomon took up his throne, but in an even greater way, Jesus will bring justice. Those who have committed crimes against God's law will be punished. All past wrongs will be righted. Those who have faithfully served the king will be honoured. And those who have blasphemed and joined in the rebellion against God's rightful king, they will also be punished. And so Solomon is encouraged to secure the throne through punishing the wicked and rewarding the righteous. And this reminds us upon the basis upon which the Lord Jesus Christ will deal with all mankind when he comes back and takes up his throne in power. We'll think some more about that next week. Thirdly, in the final verses, we note the death of the king. We think of it under the heading from the throne to the grave. Verses 10 and 11 we read, Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. The time David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. The first thing you note about David's death is there's not much to note. The details are few and far between, unlike the death of his predecessor Saul, whose death covered two whole chapters in Scripture, 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel 1. And the reason for it, I think, is simple. David died of natural causes. That is to say, there was nothing to report about a plot to kill him that resulted in a murder. 
There was no surprise attack from an army. There was no battle in which he fell. There was no heroic attempt to give his life, but in doing so, lost it. David died in his chamber. And as the writer says, he slept with his fathers, which is a euphemism, of course, to say that David joined the faithful throng, the cloud of witnesses who have loved and served the Lord, and he went to be with them, his fathers, who were also in the presence of the Lord and with him. Now here's something to think on. When thinking of David, we often turn to the 23rd Psalm, the most famous, perhaps, of all his psalms. Think now for David about his walk through the valley of the shadow of death and his hope, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How that became reality for him. Think too on the fact that David was buried in the city of David in Jerusalem. About a thousand years later, the Apostle Paul preached at the synagogue in Antioch in Pisidia, Acts chapter 13. During his sermon, he said this, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Through his life, David completed all that God called him to do. But then he died and his body decayed in the grave, in the tomb. But in making this point about David's death, Paul wasn't making a historic point to say, oh, David's dead and his tomb's here. And if you dug it up, you'll probably find his bones. But he went on to say, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. See, while David died and was buried, Paul's point is that David's greater son, Jesus, died and was buried and was raised back to life again. His body did not see decay or corruption. And Jesus is the king who now rules on David's throne. And there's one more thing about David's death. It is, sadly, a reminder that all people die. I'm going to die. You are going to die. We're all going to die, unless Jesus returns, of course, before our death. And maybe your passing may not get a state funeral. It may not even make the morning newspapers. But it will not go unnoticed by God. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, says the psalm writer. And this is something we remember every time one of the Lord's own, especially when one of our own, enters the land where death is no more the land of the living. For this is the land of the dying. Well, what then of this first part of chapter 2? Well, it seems to me that with the focus on David, we should finish with him and note these things well. That his reign as king was more important and critical than any other in the history of Israel. Both from a secular and a religious point of view, 
In the first place, he consolidated into a kingdom what had previously been a rabble of tribes, jealous tribes, and so enabled his his people to take a place among the nations of the world. And in the second place, he strengthened his people's attachment to the Lord by the zeal he showed for God's honour and worship and by the obedience he rendered to his word. And while we may note that he was never free from reproach, being guilty of adultery and murder, being cruel in war and negligent of justice at home, he also repented sincerely and showed humility under reproof resignation in adversity and faith in the Lord's mercy, always affording us an example. He's a man, at best a man, and a fallen man. But then also there's this important truth. David's greatest legacy for Israel and for us is found in Jesus This morning we read his last words. They were not just words of advice. They were words of eternal life and salvation. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And that eternal life and that salvation is for eternity through his death and resurrection. These things... We learn from David, who, as always, points us to Jesus. Let's pray. We bring thanks, our Lord and God, for your servant David. He did not rule over any of us in particular, but he stands out in the scriptures as a faithful servant of yours, imperfect in so many ways, but a believer and a man who found the grace of God and he connected into that grace by faith, believing the promises that you gave him that a Messiah would come from his own family. We open the New Testament and we see Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David, And we thank you for what it tells us there of the one who spoke such wonderful words but also achieved such a wonderful salvation for us. He died, but not forever. So our hope is in him. We thank you for him, our Redeemer, son of David. May his words be upon our hearts. This day, we pray in his name. Amen.